0: I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me, and if you want to get in touch, Hello everybody, welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Chris Chinchilla. It's a packed episode, lots of links, of course, lots of AI news and an interview as well, taken again from the recent We Are Developers event here in Berlin, which is where I am coming to you from. It's actually strange that there's so much news. It's August, usually this is a quiet month, but actually it's been a very, very busy few weeks Lots and lots to cover, offsetting a lot of that AI and new tech can use with my interview with Elise Bentley from Tugo, who's the VP of marketing there. They now own both CK Editor and TinyMCE, which were projects from the past for me. When I used to do a lot more CMS work, they were often used as these WYSIWYG What You See is What You Get editors, and the same company now actually owns. Both of them, they are both open source and they have commercial offerings and we dig into a lot of what all of that means in the interview. But before we get to the links for this episode, let me just talk a little bit about one of the sponsors of this episode, which is Zencaster, your all-in-one platform for podcasting, basically. I've been doing this for quite some time. I've used many, many different methods, and still do. (laughs) And Zencaster is one that has actually been around for a while. It's an all-in-one option. It lets me uh, bring guests in, capture their input and my output in top quality, which has often been a problem with other tools. It lets me do some editing, for example, getting rid of ums and ahs and mm, pauses and uncertainties, and then distribute, monetize, All of the things you will need to do with a modern podcast. And my, if these had existed when I first started, that would have been fantastic. If you want to try it for yourself, head on over to zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code Squeaks, and you will get 30% off your first month on any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all of my podcasts. And it is time to share your stories. Thank you, Zencaster. Let's begin with a whole plethora of artificial intelligence content this is over on the rest of world blog a great blog for world well, for the rest of the world ironically or well, not ironically i suppose the name says it all this is the workers at the front lines of the ai revolution from andrew deck now, one of the promises of artificial intelligence is is endlessly that it will free us from the the drudgery, the tedium for that little work that we have to do and apparently are so frustrated with doing. And that is somewhat true. But there are, there were, there still are people who did a lot of that work for us. Outsource workers, um, even people who at the beginning of their career uh, people switching careers, people on platforms like Fiverr and upwork etc etc and this was this was a good income for many of them in in some of these places and this article goes into a great amount of detail about how this new or current AI revolution is affecting those some in the negative they 're not seeing work anymore, some in the positive, some in the short term, some in the long term so It's actually uh, actually pretty balanced, pretty pragmatic, Just not just saying, oh, it's all bad, not just saying it's all amazing, but a little bit of a nuanced perspective across the board, which is actually interesting to see. Put some faces to the things, especially put some faces to people that probably you and I have used on some of these platforms. Also as well, because sometimes so many of these people you use, you kind of just think of as this person there, that, uh, I don't know, people treat them in in different ways, from negative to positive. And actually seeing the faces to some of these and the efforts they put into their work was also interesting itself, separate from the whole actual point of the article. So head on over to Rest of World to have a look at that. Next on the subject of AI affecting how many of us work... One of the traditional ways that many developers and and other people went to, to go and find answers to questions was Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow certainly has been the source of knowledge for a lot of generative AI tools. But uh, it was definitely, even in the short time frame, these tools have been array- available finding a change in its traffic and its usage on how people were looking. So they, and actually this was during or at the We Are Developers event, so I'm catching up a little bit here, they have announced their own suite of tools now called, very cleverly, Overflow AI. Sounds a little odd to me, but there we go. I always think... I always think it's interesting, actually. I, I kind of feel like fitting very neatly into the same world here, and I covered them on the last episode. Wikipedia and Stack Overflow are both places where people go so much and their content definitely influences and is an input to generative AI amongst many other things. But I don't think either of the businesses, and I use this to mean you know the way they make money, Wikipedia isn't officially a business, I've never, you know, considering how popular they are, I don't think they either either of them are actually huge, huge businesses. I don't think of Stack Overflow as up there with Google or Apple or somebody like that. You know, it's it's interesting to see that these sites that are so relied upon are probably smaller than you may think. So, this is their play into their their business suite of tools. I think it's mostly in the team space, and this is this is reasonable. Because that's where they make their money and actually maintaining a lot of this uh, infrastructure behind these tools is expensive as well. It costs, so they have to recoup that somehow. It's in the guise of a VS Code plugin at the moment that can also call upon your uh, Teams instance of Stack Overflow. And also in Slack as well, which is where people tend to ask a lot of questions. I actually worked at a company that was using Stack Overflow in Slack. That's a confusing sentence to say. <laughs> Too many acts in there to uh, to answer common questions as well. So it gets even cleverer there. And, and actually, in some respects, I've seen this in a, in a few talks and posts recently, This this whole conversation around using these tools to be trained on your own Data, I think, is where things will get more interesting in the future instead of just very general sucking it up from everywhere. Getting them trained on information relevant to you or your business, I think, is actually where they will become much more interesting, much safer, much more private, much less uh, issues around copyright and things like that too. And we'll see. Maybe uh, Overflow AI will be one of those on that journey. One of the other interesting discussions around this was that you know Stack Overflow is renowned for sometimes being a little aggressive with the way it answers people, and I'm using it as a very general term to describe a group of people, and AI doesn't tend to be like that. Well, we obviously have examples of chatbots going rogue and things like that, but typically these days now, especially with the recent wave of tools, they're fairly positive with the way they respond to you, so ironically people may actually get more, far more pleasant responses from this new overflow AI. And I am looking forward to maybe trying it at some point soon, actually. Another interesting article, actually, that relates a little bit to the rest of World Post. this is actually on Deutsche Welle, which is one of the German-English language sort of media outlets. And this is written by Kira Schacht called Bridging the AI Language Gap in Africa and Beyond. And... We've already seen that a lot of these these services, a lot of these models have been trained on common languages, largely English, but I guess also French, Spanish, uh, Mandarin, German, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then there's a lot of countries, with a lot of people that speak languages that in the kind of global pecking order are not high priorities. And this certainly includes areas of the developing world. And this article just goes into looking at that, looking how a lot of their knowledge, a lot of their information even ignoring their usage of these tools, but that their their knowledge, their world knowledge is not forming part of these models. Uh, I think there's always obviously been a diversity discussion. Well, not always, but there's recently been a diversity discussion in uh, a lot of the tech space. But um, as we now are kind of really moving into this discussional, Interface into knowledge. It's language is becoming a hmm, a bigger and bigger and more important part of this, and that is the way you interact with them, but also what you get out of them. Uh, so, bearing in mind, a lot of those languages is interesting, and uh, I think this this ties in with uh, projects from uh, Mozilla and people like that about trying to catalogue a lot of these languages. And just to see if a lot of the, the companies, especially the open source projects are different, but if the companies will actually respect and leverage some of uh, the knowledge from these language groups in these parts of the world too. One final article on the whole AI conversation. This is something that was reported in a few places, but I am going to reference Gizmodo by Linda Kodega. This was uh, something that came out. This was actually interesting because it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. This was an artist who works for over 10 years on Dungeons and Dragons source books for Wizards of the Coasts. Happened to mention, I think, in a meeting or online, I think online, that they used generative AI, probably mid journey, to prototype and experiment with some ideas for the artwork. I guess just kind of getting on board with that conversation around the workflows, about how you might do something like this. And interestingly, Wizards of the Coast actually then put out a statement saying that they would withdraw that work and that they were updating contracts that this shouldn't happen, that all artwork should be human-generated. And the, the interesting thing I find here is it's not necessarily what you'd expect You know, if someone said, hey, I just made all this artwork for half the price of what you pay me, you think sometimes a company might think, oh, well, great. But they actually wanted to stick with the human side of it. But I also wonder, especially with something like Midjourney, and they were just using it as kind of idea generation that then took further, if they hadn't even said it, would anyone have even noticed? Uh, So it was an interesting uh, conversation that sort of came out of a niche area but then took the conversation to places that I certainly didn't expect. And I know probably if you go on DMs Guild, which is kind of a user-generated content resource, shall we say, for role-playing content, I would imagine that a lot of the books there now are full of generated artwork Um, because for the people at that level, which is me included, paying artists all the time is expensive and time-consuming. And I know when I recently, when I've wanted just artwork for a thumbnail or something, it's very quick and easy to go and use one of these tools uh, and to see that a big publisher is already saying, no, we don't worry about the expense. We want human only artwork. I suppose there's also this discussion around copyright. Wizards of the Coast has been more sensitive in recent months after the big kerfuffle with the whole DD licensing thing recently. So I guess they feel they can't be hard on a community around copyright if they're not careful themselves. And maybe that was some of the justification. Anyway, have a read. It was, a, it was sort of one of those articles that probably wouldn't have even come out if it had been a busier news week. But it was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, event that mixed many of the worlds I move in and uh, led to some, so yeah, some endpoints that I wasn't expecting, which I, which I found interesting. Next from Stephen Shankland on CNET, the 500 cables, the secret life of 500 cables that run the internet. I've actually talked about this in the past several times because there's always been a little bit of a a personal interest in this for me because my grandfather actually used to lay a lot of the large reams of copper cables that sort of predate this, uh, largely used for telephones, maybe still are, but now it's optic fibers and he always used to say to me that optic fibers will be the future of of uh, how we do this and to look out for them and now you know we're so reliant on this backbone that connects us all it's becoming increasingly fascinating to read more about them i have a few books on my to read list actually that um that go into the story in much more detail and how vulnerable they are and between some points there's very very few cables and if one goes you almost lose um entire connection and some of the companies that make a lot of money out of the internet google facebook etc actually have laid some of their own alternatives for, for anybody to use because it's so important to them for those areas to be connected and this article goes into a lot more detail around how they got there, how they're laid, how they work, how they function, and again, the vulnerabilities and what happens and how they get rescued, how they get fixed, all sorts of things. Quite, quite fascinating for me, anyway. Over on Wired, kind of taking the counterpoint here, this is Gregory Barber. The cloud is a prison. Can the local first software movement set us free? This I found it interesting because I was thinking about something similar in the past, and I've always been striving to be as as offline as local first first as possible, uh, and to not have everything reliant in the cloud. I always seek ways to make sure I have local copies of everything that I can push back and forth and synchronize with uh, with online. And in some respects, I found this to match with that opinion of mine. It talks about, uh, I think, mostly uh, German and a couple of other European academics who have been working around these concepts and trying to create tools that make this, quote-unquote, easy for people. I was also thinking to me, like, don't we already have some of these technologies? Things like Git already do this. A lot of distributed databases already do this. And some of what they cover and discuss... Are using some of those, but a little bit of me was left thinking, I get the 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 mentality here, but I didn't quite understand the technical implementation, the technical decisions, because I feel like they exist, they're already to be leveraged. Uh, maybe I was misunderstanding something. I'd be interested to try and interview actually some of the people behind it. To, to find out more about what they really meant. Maybe the article didn't quite get that right or something, I'm not sure, because I was sort of left thinking, I love the idea, I love the principle, but the implementation was where I was a little confused at the moment into why they weren't leveraging things that already existed around this. And in theory, you know, a lot of even cloud-based tools will do this to a limited degree as you go offline. So if you could leverage some of that, but yeah to me it's like git is there it's not perfect for many many things but it could be expanded upon etc cetera, etc cetera. so have a read of it and uh, as always you can head on over to christianschiller.com maybe give me your input on it and then your your take on it your thought on yeah, you know, on the uh, way you think this could go based on the 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 idea the principles Taking uh, this kind of offline, local first uh, example further, this was written on Quartz by Diego Lassarati. The right to pay anonymously has become part of an EU culture war. And what anonymously means is with cash. I live in a country, Germany, that is still quite cash heavy. So is one of its neighbours, Austria. So are a handful of other countries around the world. Japan, famously so. I think Italy to a certain extent as well. Whilst also in the European Union there are countries that are so the other way, cash is almost vanished. And it's an interesting conversation because I frankly prefer to pay without cash. I find it easier. I have a lot of tools that I synchronise to my bank account so I can do budgeting and finance tracking and all these sorts of things. And actually I, I I think if you use things like Apple Pay and Google Pay, They do make it pseudo-anonymous. You sort of have to trust a provider, of course, uh, which is a conversation, a whole other conversation. But it's interesting because there was always a lack of privacy with paying with cash and uh, old-school way of paying with card as well, in that you don't have any privacy between you and the person you're buying from. But, of course, you and the person you're buying from is a much smaller interaction than you and a credit card provider or you and a an aggregator of credit card data. And in many countries, the, the cash is becoming, the discussion around keeping cash is becoming less of a discussion around financial literacy and access, but more around privacy and that they don't mm. want people to know what they're spending. I think it's a conversation that is at an extreme in some respects, but I get it. I just I sometimes wonder if they haven't investigated other ways to do it or if they are concerned about a problem that is or isn't there. It's hard to know exactly. Uh, have, a, have a read about it. Have a, have a think. Uh, again, as always, I invite you to to let me know. There is, of course, another way you can give me feedback. I actually have a, a substack newsletter that goes out with this show and you could also jump in there and add uh, comments and have discussion around the newsletter there too. So this is one I'd really like to get some more input on because – I get it, but there's bits I don't quite understand. And I wonder if the conversation, if I'm missing something in the conversation or if the people who are on the other side are missing something. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's um, not to say I think cash could go away. It is going away in some countries. Interestingly, there is a sub meta conversation around this where often the countries that Struggle with this the most and justify the privacy aspect are countries that trust governments less, and the Scandinavian countries where they do trust the government quite a lot, are mostly on board with it. There's the 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 weird there's there's countries somewhere in the middle of that where it gets more interesting, like the UK, where they don't really trust the government but they love paying cashless. So it's not always related, but there is some correlation. Um, and despite Germany and especially Austria being Mostly sort of functional, trusting of government. It's the, the cash movement is very strong there in Germany. It's for some other reasons, potentially in Austria as well. There's some cultural reasons there and historical reasons as well. Um, and there's much more understanding and justification with that privacy aspect. There's countries that had you know cultures in the past that were very, uh, very, um. Uh, observant of their populace, shall we say. But then that doesn't apply to other countries uh, like Poland, for example. I hardly ever use cash. In fact, I never use cash there. And they were also living under a regime like that. Same in the Baltics. So it's a very mixed messaging around this whole discussion sometimes. And they don't always correlate or make sense with the reasoning. Um, And I sort of wonder how long this will hold out in the EU, because there's definitely a convenience to not shipping a lot of cash around as well, and uh, cost saving, which could be used in many, many other ways. So it's a very nuanced conversation that's only really just starting to begin, I think. Okay, I'm, I'm getting there. There's this, I said there was a lot of links here. The next one is over on Emma Gannon's substack. Is social media over or are we just older now? And this is something I've definitely felt. I felt like... Twitter, X, whatever it is now has kind of died, but even all the replacements and alternatives to it never even really lived. Um, I feel like a lot of the traditional places I used to interact with people don't exist anymore uh, or are not very lively. You can't get people on them anymore, and I'm almost at this point where I don't really know where to – well, two different things. I don't really know where to promote anymore. That's one thing. Uh, Traditionally, places I used to promote and have a lot of followers in just don't really work anymore. But I also don't even know how to – interact with friends or communities as much anymore. Everything is very splintered and fragmented now, which is fine, but it's hard to keep on top of it all. And for those of us who've been around for a while, there is this feeling that do we just not understand or is it done? And that's what this post goes into quite a bit of. I think I'll let you go off and read it because I'm starting to get a bit tight on time, but it was very much identifying with a feeling that I had as well, which is why I liked reading it a quick little bit of kind of breaking news before i uh, get into my final articles firstly avid was acquired for 1.4 billion who are avid they make pro tools amongst many other tools this is interesting uh, but there's been this i'll actually link to a video in the show notes and my my substack on this this episode uh, that there was a very good video that someone sent to me about a lot of private equity and investment firms taking over a lot of music business uh, a lot of music Business. So when I say that, I mean like music creation, uh, plugins, software, not not music making, not, not music labels, things like that. And there's been a lot of uh, investment from those. And now Avid, one of the larger, more mature companies, is also now part of that. Um, a company called STG, a private equity firm, has taken them over and there's a lot of discussion in the wider music technology community around this. It's like, why? What are they all getting out of this? They're, they're lucrative, but not the most lucrative businesses. Are all these businesses in trouble? Is that why they needed this? Like, what is motivating all this? And I will link to the video, and you can have a. Uh, even if it's not your world, it's interesting to see what's happening, and how it could be dangerous for a you know big section of the sort of creative technology world equally in uh, in conversations around uh, what could be problematic for wider worlds, Hashicorp has joined the plethora of companies who have gone interesting with their open source licenses again it's been a little while since one of these happened there was many examples a few years ago, pinpointing the problem being that many people benefit from their work and that they want the way to monetize it more exclusively and mm-hmm. This is a justified point, but of course, many would argue that's never been the point of open source. The point of open source is not to just find a convenient way for you to monetize, it's to be open source. And there's always some nuances and subtleties around this. They're not going completely closed, not completely open, it's kind of a 50-50 world. If you're just an individual person who wants to contribute some code, you still can. It's the way you can then monetize all of that. And I don't really know where this is going to end. I feel like the past few years of monetizable, fundable open source is coming to an end, and I don't really know what's going to replace it. Is open source still going to be what it always was? How will it keep sustaining itself? These are all kind of part into that same conversation. And we'll see what happens next, I think, in HashiCorp's case the the wider ecosystem. Finally, I'm actually going to wrap up with two stories about food. Not normally what I talk about. This is a, firstly, is another article from Deutsche Welle. Uh, Penny, which is a supermarket here in mostly East Germany, has decided for a limited period of time, mostly as a marketing thing, is going to sell food at its real cost, instead of sometimes its subsidised cost, especially in the European Union. So this means that meat is a lot more expensive, dairy is a bit more expensive, vegetarian items are basically the same, et cetera, et cetera. Some are labelling it as greenwashing. Some are labelling it as unfair. Some are labelling it as the best thing they could have done, et cetera, et cetera. But it's an interesting conversation to make people, you know, actually shooting themselves in the foot in some respects financially to make a point. Um, And I found it an interesting strategy. I haven't been into a penny since they did this to see what effect it's having. And largely from Penny, I actually buy their vegan kind of stuff anyway, uh, because they have some quite good stuff and the price hasn't really changed. So it won't affect me so much. I don't eat meat, so it would affect me even less. Um, but especially in Germany where food is very heavily subsidized and un- artificially, it's artificially cheap, to be honest with you. Sometimes you go to other countries where it's the same price and people earn less, so it's very heavily subsidized here. And people don't always realize what that means behind the scenes. And moving forward into the environmental conversation around food, what is that really gonna mean for everybody? Is is one of those really important discussions we need to start having, especially in the West, I think. Relating to that, and really, and really and finally on the BBC. Fake meat As beyond meat sales fall, have we had outfilled? This is largely related to the UK where the sales of a lot of this kind of mock meat stuff have gone from being crazy popular and dropping quite a lot. And there's a few different discussions around this, why a lot of it is probably just the cost. They're relatively expensive, especially those brand ones in a country that is really feeling the pinch of the cost of living. But also, and I know this, and I eat a fair few of these because they're very easy to eat as a vegetarian. Um What is really in them sometimes is, is a concern that's coming up a lot for me especially because always labelled as being healthy, but are they? Because they're quite heavily processed. Are they as good for the environment as people say, et cetera, et cetera? It's really hard to know. So there's a lot of input going into this. Is just the hype over? Is the bubble over? Hard to know. Anyway... Thought that was another interesting discussion to throw into there. Now, before my interview, just a couple of other sponsors of the show. Thank you very much to them. And now my interview with Elise from Tugo, talking about CK Editor and Tiny MCE editor from taken from We are developers recently. Hope you enjoy. Now, you the product you work on is different from the company, but are they connected or?
1: Yes, so we're we're in this really interesting stage. So four and a half years ago, I joined Tiny the the Tiny MC family, and I was working exclusively on that product. Yeah. Then, um, April last year, we were actually uh, acquired by a new company, Taiugo. Yeah. Um, which is the company that I kind of work, I officially work for now, but what's very interesting is about a year before they acquired Tiny, they acquired CK Editor. Really? Yes. So Tiny and CK Editor are both part of the Tayugo family and I'm officially, um, looking after both brands.
0: Interesting. Before we go into that, let's, um, let's actually maybe, because these are two names that are very familiar to me yep. and it will be definitely familiar to people who have been around web development for a while. Um, but for, for people who maybe come from a slightly kind of more recent web development background, we should probably explain what they are. What are CK? And
1: tiny, is it still tiny MCE? Tiny MCE, yes. MC what what are they? So they are both rich text editing components. So kind of think about when you want to add advanced content creation and editing functionality to your app for end users, you would pick either Tiny MCE or CK editor, depending on your particular use case and which editor is as a better fit for you, you could pick one of them and you'd integrate them into your app for your end users to create content.
0: Okay. Um, and so we're talking about content management systems, things like
1: that. Content management, emails, we're seeing actually a lot of people using us in chat bots, uh, learning management systems, document management, project management, you name it, if there is a need for any form of content creation, we're there.
0: And. I mean, we've just opened, we're talking about how now they're both over the same company, yeah. but what would be some of the reasons why you may pick one over the other?
1: Of course. So, CK Editor is a really, really strong, flexible, customizable, rich text editor, really focused on collaboration. So, when you need the ultimate control over how you implement your editor, the ability to customize it, Combined with that need for, say, collaboration, track changes, those sort of things, CK Editor, without a doubt, is going to be the best editor for you. Whereas TinyMCE, it's a – almost think about it more as a component that you pick up, you drop into your application. It's a enterprise-grade, rich text editor with really great end-user features you do give up a little bit of that customization and a little bit of that flexibility, but you get a rich text editor that just works and works really well all the time.
0: And it's interesting you say that because in the times when I used to work with, I think to be honest, you can mostly seek, I think, can't quite remember, it's been a while. Um, mm-hmm. There was always this promise of WYSIWYG editors that never really fully delivered, is that, Honestly, is that still the case or has it got a lot better
1: now? I think it's a lot better than what than what it used to be. I think that if people had used previous versions of either CK Editor or, or Tiny MC, they might have been a little bit disappointed. But if they go to the modern versions that we have now, they would they would use them and they'd be like, Yeah, these guys are setting setting the pace. They're setting the innovation. Um, they are we are truly defining what rich text editing means within the industry, and everyone else follows what our two core brands do sure. and use us as their templates.
0: I mean, are there other major competitors outside of those two now? Do-
1: your doesn't <laughs> <laughs> no. of, of course there are other um, rich text editors out there and some of them are really fantastic. For example, um, Facebook uh, introduced Lexical, a open source editor. It's still um, in that early phase of its journey and it will remain open source and it will be very core editing, but it's got a very interesting framework and architecture behind it. Um, then you you do have other up-and-comers. But we we typically see that the average rich text editor only has a shelf life of two or three years before its sunset, whereas um, the tiny brand, the CK Editor brand, 20 years, years and we are many, many rich text editors later, but we are are the professional company that's really about creating the quality rich text editors that last and have – the upgrade paths to make sure it's modern and keeps up with modern standards.
0: Let's um, now, okay, let's start maybe with, um, and I mean, I, I get the feeling that you're, you're most interested in timing, but now you kind of represent both of I guess we can talk about both, it's so up to you. Where would people have seen and used
1: them? Yeah, <laughs> so, I I I love both brands equally. Okay. Um. So, for example, CK Editor, um, you will see them as the default editor within Drupal. Um, you see them in a number of IBM products. Uh, you will see them in. Uh, I'm having a mental blank. I'm so sorry. Does Joomla still exist? Joomla, yes, but um, I believe Joomla, I. Off the top of my head, is CK Editor WordPress is <laughs> so WordPress Classic is Tiny MCE. Yeah. Uh, then you've got Gutenberg, which is their own system. But CK Editor, we consistently see it used and integrated into new products. At least um, it's downloaded about ten thousand times every single week. Yeah, and what about things like?
0: Uh Braco.
1: Um, Braco is a tiny MC. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think I do remember when I think Tiny's slightly newer than CK, isn't it? Maybe. I think. Um, I feel like there was a time when we all started discussing which one we should use because I think Tiny was smaller and lighter was one. Yes.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Um, TinyMC has put a lot of effort on being lightweight and it can do that because it is that component style system where you can just drop it in, but it does kind of come at the cost of not quite as flexible, not quite as customizable. CK Editor is a little bit heavier, but you do get that customizer customizability and flexibility. And if you really focus on what it is you need, you can actually take away a lot of the weight of CK editor and be just as light, just as fast. It just takes a little bit more um yeah. effort because you've got that customization yeah. that you need to think through.
0: And I think that's kind of my memory. This was back in the day when, you know, the JavaScript framework of choice was jQuery mm-hmm. and you used to have to you know I think I think the editors were the same way. you got to a point where you, you didn't have to download everything. You could like select the bits and you would kind of download just what you needed. Because yep. I mean we we talk now about trying to reduce page weight, but this is a time when page weight was not just a uh, um, you know environmental issue or a cost issue. This mm. is when the internet was much slower yep. and it was just the pages would be very slow if you had, had too much jQuery or mm. or text editors and
1: things like that because
0: Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are still even using data behind, them, yeah. for example, so it became a lot more important. I guess it's probably changed a little now, and also the way people install external tools has kind of changed.
1: Yes, now? Uh, definitely. So one of the things that we're, we're doing across both brands is we've got cloud-based um, delivery so that the, the end users, particularly um, the, the end developers that are actually integrating, they don't actually have to take on the payload. They can just call the APIs. And we obviously, we actually have a dedicated cloud team that focuses on maintaining the cloud systems and really trying to be as efficient as possible to make sure that we deliver a quality rich text editing experience without the weight, yep. allowing them to be faster than ever. I
0: think using CDNs for things was just the sort of stuff to become yep. popular when we were still doing through i sure it was a lot, okay. Um, okay, your talk is around a large scale open source company, and that was one of the aspects in, in the talk that Chessman me. And as we already discussed, both projects have been around for 20 years, they are our core open source, but obviously you're also a business. So, yes. what's the what's the difference between the open source and the
1: business? Are you like an old school open source company, and basically support or the different versions? Or so we we family support open source. We will always continue to support the open source. So for us, it's about we we always came back to how can we actually continue to maintain an open source and actually provide commercial features so that we can we can pay the bills. And, yes, in a traditional sense, support used to be it. We do provide support, but that's actually not how we've decided to commercialise. We've actually gone and we've created a whole set of features which are just in our commercial solution. Yeah. But they're not features that absolutely everybody needs desires, we really sat back and we thought, okay, what are the features that the top 5% of users need, the professional software teams that are going to use it heavily, and more importantly, are actually going to make them money when they put it into their application? How What do those features look like so that we can make sure that we work with them, deliver them value, and get... The value back so that we can reinvest into our business and into our open source core. And that's sort of that approach that we took, which is a bit unusual. And that's why in a product such as Tiny, we have advanced features such as PowerPaste, where you've got clean copy paste from Word and Microsoft, uh, Microsoft Word and Google Docs. Everybody knows that. Feature, that? <laughs> <laughs> that was always the nightmare back in
0: the day. You always love when people are pasting from Word. Yeah. Um, the, I think that's a that's a, that's an essential
1: feature. <laughs> that's uh that shouldn't be paid for. But
0: anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. All right. Um, and anything anything else that the other what else i was interested to know, is it things like uh, templates maybe?
1: Yes, so we have advanced templates over in, in Tiny MC CK editor we've got the much more advanced collaboration features, track changes. Yeah, that's
0: something that sounds a lot newer. And you said the uh, collaboration as
1: well. So yes, I'm collaboration. Sure. So you can have asynchronous collaboration or true real-time collaboration where you can have hundreds of people in a document at once and our mm. systems are strong enough that all those hundreds can be editing that doc at once and well, it still works. of
0: interested if you're allowed to say where have people embedded in- and use that functionality in any products we know?
1: Um, yes, I, I just can't disclose that, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: That's why I once saw a talk from an last engineer. so I probably made my own thing, about how, how complicated it was to create those kind of features. So, <laughs>
1: Yes, definitely. When we were um, creating real-time collaboration and everything, I can definitely say that some very, very large, well-known companies reached out to our team to kind of say, what's your approach been? How are you guys doing it? So definitely the the teams that we have working on real-time collaboration really are world experts within this space. Cool,
0: cool. Okay, so on the open source side, it has existed for some time and has kept going. So, you know, a very brief summary of your your talk. What do you think are some of the strategies that have helped with that that you would recommend other people try?
1: Well, one of the one of the really big benefits that we've had is actually teaming up with other ecosystems. We've mentioned Umbraco, yeah. Drupal. We've got Moodle, all of these other ones where we are actually our core editor is within those products really helping them to grow and using that for sort of brand recognition. Another really, really popular one and a little bit of a, like a traditional SAS play is if you actually, um, look in the bottom right-hand corner of our editors, you will sometimes see, our uh, one of our logos there, mm. which actually says, Hey, tiny built this, those sort of things. Obviously we do allow people to turn it off. We kindly request that you don't, if you're using it open source. But that's been uh, a major source of of growth for us. And we've also been been very, very fortunate that having those advanced commercial features, it gives us the the funds in order to actually invest in open source, such as attending events such as we are developers and actually sharing our open source core, all of those sort of things with the world and letting people know that, hey, we are here, this is what we can do for you.
0: Yeah. How much of of either project is contributed
1: outside of the economy? I'll be, I'll be very honest, not much. Um, we, we obviously, our, our biggest um, source of community is actually flagging, flagging bugs to us. Mm. Again, I think because they know that, hey, there's this core, core team that are actually working on it. They flag the bugs and they're like, yeah, they'll fix it mm. for us. Um, we do, um, often have people making contributions. Um, one of the things that we do try and do is keep a very, very strong code quality. So when we do get contributions, we do put them through a stringent test and we'll often work with those people to make some changes and then accept it into the call.
0: Okay. And just to, I just wanted to clarify some of the, so if someone uses the open source version, so say we take something like Drupal, um, it's an open source project. It's yeah. obviously used on a lot of things that are probably very commercial. But how? how is it, because it was built into an open source tool, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that the, the Drupal community doesn't have, no one pays for it there. Correct. And it's just handled through the open source version and the fact that people make money out of that further along the line is just kind of... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's just for anything that is overtly closed source or commercial that they have to use a different version
1: or they can still use they can still use, the they can still use the open source version. So we've made a conscious decision with, with TinyMC. It's actually under MIT. So okay. you, you don't have to, to pay for it. Um, we really do place our commercialization on having those more advanced features of things that we want to provide value to. Um at, at this point in our growth journey, we want to get our product into as many hands as possible. And there are many companies out there, they're very small, they're startups. They can't afford commercial solutions. They they still need something that's MIT, in, and we want to help them grow. We really do want to give back to the developer community and, and ensure that they have access to really great quality um, editing tools.
0: and uh... Please explain the uh, the Dungeons & Dragons reference. in your <laughs> talk title. <to him. laughs>
1: so, something that is a little known fact, yeah. but very interesting, is if you go to Dungeons & Dragons' website, your online character builder... Of
0: the, the, the D&D Beyond. Yeah. Which has its own controversy. That you will...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not a D&D oh. player, so... Um, But the character creator tool, that is actually using open source MC, Okay. And it has been for for many years. So it's a somewhat token. uh, (laughs) Yes, but um, I know that particularly internally when we we've played around with our developers and engineers internally, they've definitely played with the tool and they've been very, very excited that they've seen it there. They've actually ended up using it themselves to sort of enjoy it.
0: Fair enough, I think I think I well I definitely use D beyond character but how I use the I'm not sure. But it actually brings me to an interesting point, is like I said to you at the beginning here that I tend to personally not really use Wikipedia media anymore. I think because I just come from that pedigree, that history of they were always like more trouble than they were worth, and it was easier just to write some Mark or some HTML, and just paste it in. <laughs> yeah, that's always been kind of my workflow. Um, so how have, and I kind of feel like there's possibly a, a reasonable amount of people who still think like that, or the coders who kind of don't want anything to, to help them, as it were. So how do you kind of keep up with, and I don't really, it's not really the right term of phrase, and I don't mean to be offensive with it, but remain relevant in, in, the, in, a, in a sort of changing ecosystem that maybe doesn't want those
1: tools as so much anymore, or do they? Am I wrong? I don't know. I think that it's it becomes that really interesting case. Yes, generally developers think, "Why do we need uh, a rich text editor? Why do we need a WYSIWYG editor? I'll just code it." We're not actually creating the product necessarily for them. We're creating the product for the end users, the people that are like what's html yeah i know how to use microsoft word i know how to use google docs developers unfortunately they're like cool we need to provide that so what we're about is providing that experience for the end users that they're familiar with but a great developer experience with the integration and the maintaining because we know that providing that great experience to end users actually makes developers' lives easier, less support tickets for them, less hassle, less maintenance, yeah. all of those sort of things. So it's about freeing up their time so that they can actually go and focus on what really matters to their yeah. product.
0: I guess probably the, the biggest competitor is probably just developers want to, to it themselves. Like we're well, just bold with the talent and the length. Like how hard is it?
1: <laughs> many many developers think that um, they begin on that journey and then they come back and they select one of the pre-made rich text editors because they're like, okay, it's, it's much harder.
0: So, looking into the the next six months or so, what's what's some features and ideas on the roadmap? And I guess is there anything happening in? industry at the moment that is is changing the way you're thinking about what you're developing, what you're creating.
1: Yeah, so um, we actually had a historical moment two two days ago. We have officially released the very first um, AI for rich text editing. So that is a big innovative trend. It's something that Obviously, AI is disrupting the way that we do it. Yep. But we're again, we're trying to think about the end users. So when it comes to innovation in rich text editing, that's what you always need to be thinking about. So we're not just doing an integration. We're actually pre-making prompts and pre-making an entire UI interface that people can interact with, and they just got to press a few buttons to actually unlock the power of AI themselves.
0: And actually, uh, so an interesting thing here that is somewhat relevant to to an editor is, um, I was speaking with a friend yesterday who built um, it's, a, it's kind of an uh, interview question tool for developer interviews. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously struggling a lot with combating people getting answers from AI tools. And <laughs> the easiest thing they found to do is disable copy paste. So assuming is something that both officers probably allow as well. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah,
1: definitely AI is this emerging space that we're, we're going to continue to play in, but I think AI is here to stay, and that's why we really wanted to take this, this, this step and really introduce it and make it something accessible for people. I think that innovation within the rich text editor space isn't necessarily always this big... Oh, this, this major historical trend, it's having a look at how people are actually wanting to work and how they're actually wanting to interact with tools online and making sure that we're developing a product that continues to support that shift and change with that.
0: Yeah. And is it is it a global company? Because you're based in Australia, which yes, there's plenty of fairly well-known tech companies from there, but they not no, it's the word.
1: Yeah, so we're a global remote company. So um, at last count, we're in thirteen different time zones. We've got over two hundred employees all over the world. So essentially, there will always be somebody around. Yeah,
0: for sure. And the final question, which feel free to not answer if you don't know or you'd rather not say. Now, one company owns the two major options. Do you think are they going to merge?
1: Or- no, we we do um, intend to continue to to support both editors long term. They both are brilliant editors that serve different parts of the market and are both very much needed. So I can definitely tell you right now, um, both CK Editor and TinyMC have a long life ahead of them. It's highly unlikely that you
0: will acquire or will be acquired by Meta, so (laughs) so I guess that will remain uh, in its own camp as well. Yes. Cool, all right, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was my interview with Elise. Okay, updates from me. By the time this goes out, there will be a couple of new videos up on YouTube. A new video from a, from another YouTube sponsor, another video for Document 360, and also a new Inbox We Trust video where Kill and I look at AI tools and video. Uh, you actually see some of the tools I have been using as well recently. On Medium, I've had some more Setup Month posts. I just published one where I look at Aeon Timeline, how I use it for timelining my fiction. I think that is it for now. Oh, no, 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 no. There was a new episode of Chinchilla Tales where I had two more stories from my Flash Fiction collection, which is now out. Look up Small Gregarious Fiction, Volume 1 on Amazon for print and for Kindle, and also on drive Fiction for print, for DRM-free, uh, EPUB, and also as audiobook. Um, so those are some of the things there from me. We have been continuing to playtest a board game prototype, which is going under the working title of The Good Book. So you're going to have a bunch of content about that coming out quite soon as we get deeper and deeper into testing and some of the processes we've been following around it too for the development. Um, there's going to be a lot more YouTube videos coming out soon as well. And actually a few programming projects to update you on soon as well. And when I say that, I mean actual coding. <laughs> I think that's it for now. Uh, sometimes I lose track of what I've been up to. I shouldn't make a note. I have been Christian Chiller. If you like what you found, you can, if you like what you heard or you've read, you can always find more at kristinchiller.com. And I'm always happy to talk to you about any of the topics I've covered. Thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody.